impact, income, and influence. Do you want the most powerful, actionable takeaways from today's episode? Go to actionbullets.com to grab the quick, easy-to-read takeaways that will help you change your life and grow your Welcome back to Grow Your Impact, Income, and Influence, the number one show for entrepreneurs on the internet. Today, we are talking about exits, we're talking about failed businesses, and we're talking about the personal growth that comes in between them. My guest, Pokin Young, has had multiple businesses in her lifetime. She has worked for five, six, seven-figure businesses. She's had an awesome exit. Pokin is a close personal friend of mine, and I am so excited to have her on the show. Pokin, how are you doing today? Doing really well. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Pokin, so, I mean, I was lucky enough, I spent the 4th of July with you. Um, you and your husband, Nick, have bought an amazing house. You had a good exit not that long ago, but things weren't always like this for you. Um, I'd love it if you took us back to the beginning, because, I mean, you your story is fascinating to me, like where you came from, how you got started. Um, take us back to the beginning, you know, several years ago where you got started with a normal desk job. Sure. Yeah, it's funny how life doesn't take you where you expected. I, um, I had always known I wanted to start my own business. Like I was that kid who was selling candy to classmates in school but I never felt like I had enough to just jump right in. So after school, I uh, ended up joining a French cosmetics company called L'Oreal. And that was a funny story for how I ended there too. I entered a marketing competition and uh, that's how I ended up with a job there. And I was working there for a number of years and feeling pretty good. And then the event that caused me to pivot towards foundership and entrepreneurship was a routine uh, performance review. I went in thinking things were going really well, feeling good about my products, and it got to we got to talking about where um, where things were going to go for me. And they asked me, like, you know, what what are you interested in? And I said, well, you know, I, I want to grow, I want to stay with a company, I want to um, be a manager. And that's when my manager sort of paused and said, I, I don't really see you as manager material. What? When that kind of thing happens, like I think you have a few ways to respond to that. You could try to prove them wrong. You could be like, oh yeah, you're right. I'm not really good. Or you could sort of create your own path. And that's when I saw like the chances of me changing her mind are pretty low. I've always wanted to start a business. This is probably the best time to just take that chance. Uh, let's, let's just go for it. So I quit my job and uh, started looking at businesses to build. Okay, so... I just want to, I want to go back through that because that's pretty crazy. Um, I mean, I started my business because I got fired, right? I think it's crazy to me, uh, the number of entrepreneurs we've interviewed on here, how many have either gotten fired or lost their job or had a bad performance review or knew that they weren't going to be able to grow in their company. So instead of playing the victim, which I think is what sadly happens to probably 90%, right? They say, okay, I'm not good enough. Or they get really mad about it and they go home and they just complain. They don't even look for a new job. You were like, okay, let me figure this out. Mm -hmm. I want to own my own business. So how long did it take from that performance review until you quit? Pretty quick. I mean, around that time was sort of an instrumental bucket list item moment as well. I had always wanted to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And that was around the time I had actually finally uh, scheduled and gone on the trip. 
And that whole process of planning was like some of the most frustrating experiences of my life. Like if you were to look today and you try to search for travel, like it's still the same problem. It's all full of spam and like ads and, and companies trying to get money from you than actually giving you interesting advice. So I was feeling pretty frustrated about that already. So it was kind of a few things that came together at the same time. Like, okay, Laura, this is not a career path for me. I'm gonna start with something else. I was recently frustrated about travel and I feel passionate and I think I could do a better job. So it kind of all came together. I left probably within a few months. And what was your boss's reaction? Um, probably like not surprised. I don't think she was trying for me to leave. She thought I would do great in product development. So she, she saw me staying just not on the management track. Um, but like, she always knew like, I, I'm, I'm, I can be a bit stubborn and, uh, I, I like creating things. So I'm sure she was not surprised that I would go strike out and create something. That's awesome. I mean, it's, I, I just wonder like what that's like, because you, you don't have any kind of aggressive or like get back at you bone in your body. Like you're, you're not the kind of person that's going to like stick it to the man. Right. But I, I can still see you just being like, okay, well, I'm going to go do my own thing over here. So doing your own thing. What was that? Like, talk to me about like, what was day one sure. of doing your own thing? Well, day one started with cake. Cause I love desserts. So I had to celebrate. So I actually have a photo of a cake that says day one. Um, so day one was cake. Um, I had a co-founder, um, a, a, a colleague that I met at L'Oreal and we were both really interested in like products in travel. And so he was actually in agreement of starting the business with me. So day one started with us both. He, he had left around the same time um, looking at the business we wanted to build and what we needed. And so the first thing we realized was we're both business people and we're trying to build a tech travel site. So the most important thing is to find a tech co-founder. And I say this because a lot of times when I see people with technology businesses, uh, they end up outsourcing uh, the tech thinking, well, I can build it later, which is true. But I think if you aren't a co-founder or aren't heavily involved, you just don't have the same skin in the game to think about a product or challenge the right way. And so we wanted to make sure someone cared enough to help us like co-architect this. So I, I just, we just went on this spree of reaching out to everyone we knew, looking uh, online at, at people. Back then I was, uh, I was in Toronto um, and just networking until we found a person. That actually didn't end up being our ultimate co-founder. Uh, so that there's a whole journey there, um, but, but that's what we did in the beginning, try to find a tech co-founder. So you finally found a tech co-founder. And I want to know where the name for your business came from. Sure. So the name of the business we started is called Gecko Go. Um, and the idea around that is geckos are intrepid creatures. They like to explore. They're crawling into unexpected places. And the idea of our travel company was it was a Yelp meets Lonely Planet. It was meant to learn your personality and give you suggestions of where to go and what to do based on your interests, as opposed to like what was going to give you the best hotel room rates. Nice. All right. So you went on this track, you found a technical co-founder eventually, and you got Gecko Go up and going. How long from, just give us like a, a ballpark timeline. How long from when you left your job till you started, like you had the co-founder, you started seeing something happen? 
So the first co-founder we found, um, we worked together for six months and that's the two learnings. I said, the first one is don't outsource. The second one is you want to work with someone who's not necessarily the most brilliant tech person, but someone who can get things out. And our first tech co-founder was great, but he was focused on building the perfect thing, not um, getting to proof of concept. So we spent about six months on it before we realized we weren't going to be able to get a product out. And that's when I looked and said, okay, I'm in Toronto, uh, lots of great talented people, but the mindset was not quite what we needed. People had the mindset that businesses were fully developed. Like when we talked to potential investors, they said, show me your business, uh, you know, show me your statement, income statements, like what's your revenue. We were pre-revenue because it was a new concept that we were trying to build from scratch. So at around the six months mark, we actually uprooted and moved ourselves to uh, the Bay Area, to Palo Alto to start over. Wow. That's, what was your internal dialogue during that time? Because I could see it being, I could see a lot of people being very frustrated and saying, I want to go back to the corporate world, right? I want to go back to the golden handcuffs. I'm going to start putting my resume out. You, I don't think you thought that at all. I've never heard you say that. So what was like, what was going on in your mind? Sure. It's a combination of things. I mean, I had saved some money before, so I had a bit of runway. I wasn't that concerned. Like I probably had about a year at the time. And so it wasn't so much the, there, there was definitely pressure of, okay, well, you know, I'm whittling down my savings here. Um, but the whole time through, I just was so convinced that I would figure it out. Not because I, I, I was, I was, not because I knew I was going to be perfect, but because I was going to be stubborn enough to like keep trying till it worked. So I think the feelings I was going through at the time were more just like, I just really want people to see it. Like, let's, let's get something provable. Let's get something tested. And so there was some frustration over like, you know, we built the concept, but like it was just taking a long time to build and get something out. So what happened when you moved to Palo Alto? I went through the same process of trying to network and meet people. I posted Craigslist ads for co-founders. I went to all the meetup groups. I started volunteering at conferences to meet people. And I just ended up meeting a number of awesome people. Uh, they saw over the course of a couple months, they saw like what I was trying to do. They saw my mock-ups. And I think for a few of them, like we sort of built a rapport to the point where one of them just said, you know what, I, I believe in your vision. And uh, one day, like, he's like, hey, I got something to show you, sent me like a mock-up of our business um, website, like you just built a proof of concept, I'm like, holy cow, this is amazing. Um, so we came up with a founder agreement, and he joined on as our technical co-founder. And there I got to prove, like, here's someone who is great at tech, who can move fast, because he built this concept and showed us in a few days. Well, you found exactly what you needed through networking. So I mean one of the things that I love about you is you are a great networker. You're always positive. You're always looking at like the upside of everything. So like a lot of people I think would have whined and complained, right? Even entrepreneurs I know would have said like, there's nobody good out there. I'm going to LinkedIn. I'm going to Indeed. I'm going to go like pay a headhunter. You just went and started volunteering at conferences, which I think is, I mean, Tim Ferriss did that. If you look back at like the beginning of four hour work week, before he had written the book, he went and volunteered at conferences. He made sure that he got put in the VIP lounges so that he met the the big players. And he, he tried to work all the blogger conferences. And then when he released the four hour work week, he knew he had a network, he said of over 150 people ready to promote his product. So it's a little bit different, but similar you just had like the, I wouldn't even call it grit. Like you were just like, 
problem solving agitation in your head. Like, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to, I'm just going to keep doing things. And sure enough, you found the person. So fast forward us a little bit. You get your proof of concept out. Gecko Go starts to go. What happens from there? Hey, I just wanted to take a quick break from this episode. Are you enjoying the story so far? Would you like to know how to use storytelling and story selling in your business? Check the show notes down below or go to storyselling.how to grab my free mini course on story selling and start implementing this in your business right now. All right, let's jump back to the episode. So fast forward us a little bit. You get your proof of concept out. Gecko Go starts to go. What happens from there? So it's interesting. And again, this is like where you think you go in one direction and something else happens. Gecko Go was meant to be a travel website at first. But around the time we were building this was also when Facebook apps were starting to be a thing. And one thing I've observed is like, it's so tough to get your product in front of the right customers. And that when you find an opportunity to piggyback off something, like got to go for it if it's like roughly in line with what you're doing. So at the time, Facebook was trying to get as many apps out there. It was a bit of a wild west, but it was also very visible. So for us, we looked at it and said, okay, well, we were, we we're trying to build this travel website, but maybe there's an opportunity to, to do something with Facebook. Um, because our travel site was based on like understanding your personality and giving recommendations, we thought what would be fun is to create like a, a map where people could put all the pins of where they've been and uh, the, the cities they visited and put that on a profile. So that's what we did. We built this thing and we took it one step further. It's not just a map, but based on where you've been, it gives you a travel personality like analysis to say you're like hardcore adventurer or you're a culture. Um, and that really resonated. I think we grew to the third largest map app and all of a sudden started getting a ton of traffic. And so we looked at that and said, well, how can we leverage this for our business? And um, our business was based on users writing reviews and sharing their experiences. And that's how we could develop like the profiling and um, recommendation system. So what we did is since we knew what cities you'd been in because you told us, uh, we'd start prompting you like right after you fill your map, we'd be like, hey, you know, share with us your favorite restaurant in Paris or share with us your favorite activity in Tokyo. And we found the more specific you asked people to do something, the more willing they were. And so we were actually able to use our Facebook uh, app to generate a ton of content that we were eventually able to use to seed our website uh, and get the materials we needed and a lot of initial users for, for our eventual website launch. I just wanted to take a short break from this episode and let you know about one of the biggest secrets I have found when it comes to converting webinars. If you have a webinar and it's not converting as well as you want, or if you're thinking about building a webinar and you want to grab this tip, it has helped numerous people. One of my clients, we actually doubled their conversion rate just by implementing this one simple step. And you can grab it at deathtobadwebinars.com or by clicking in the show notes below. All right, let's jump back to the episode. So talk to me that like, to me, one, that's awesome. Like you used Facebook to get data and you started asking people like, I, I hate all the cheesy surveys that are on there now. And I know because you build it, it was probably much more targeted and friendly. But it, what's your favorite restaurant in Paris? What did you like about it? Harry, would you mind writing a short review? Like I can pretty much picture like the steps you would have taken people through. 
Um, so you build out the website. Are you making any money at this time? Is there any revenue coming in? No. Um, by this time, we were super lucky that we actually had some angel investment. So we were really focused on, in our mind, like when we arrived, we thought, okay, if you build a tech business, it had to be a VC model. So what you needed to do was grow at all costs. So monetization was an afterthought. We're like, well, we have enough runway. So let's just try to get as many users as possible. So that does end up being a downfall because now going forward, I focus on monetization first, but now we were trying to get as many users and uh, as possible, not, not figure out how to monetize. Were you taking a salary at the time? No, we were living in a startup house with like five other roommates trying to keep costs low. Also like straight up Facebook style. Super Facebook style, just didn't work out of the garage, worked out of the kitchen. Yeah, kitchen, pizza, maybe a pool in the backyard. Palo nope. Alto still? Uh, yeah, this was in uh, Mountain View actually. Okay, so you're going. What happens is, as the, the customer base is starting to grow, but your runway is starting to shrink? That's the up and downs of the founder life. Like Because we were so focused on just trying to grow, and not so much a monetization, we were really at the mercy of raising more money and getting more investors. And already I think travel is a, is a very crowded space because it's very sexy. Everyone wants to do something in travel. So we were warned by a number of people that said like, don't go into travel, do something else. But we were like, we're gonna solve this. So, I mean, we kept trying to get users, but like there's a certain point where there's only so much you can, grow um and we weren't hitting enough numbers where people were necessarily willing to fund us so yeah i mean it got to a certain point of where the stress kept building within our team and it just got really challenging to keep going so what was the moment when you made the decision not to keep going i think uh i mean uh, it's kind of like being in business is like being in a relationship and the number one reason a lot of couples have trouble is financial difficulty. So I think the same kind of pressure put a toll on the team. Like all of us were really, really got along well for most of it. But by the time like we got to this point where we were doing everything we could to grow, but it wasn't enough to convince people, even though we have better metrics than some of our competitors, I think it really took a toll on the team. And so relationships started breaking down uh, and we had like what my co-founder who I started the business with uh, decided to step away. And I think that was the beginning of the end. Thanks for sharing. Cause I know that's not the most fun thing to talk about, but it's what happened next for you is what's like where it turns around. Right. Because how long was it between that non-exit and starting something new. And it's funny because like, and that's where like networking and relationships matter because ultimately we weren't able to build something that was super profitable, but it's the relationships that we built where at the point where we said, okay, we're not gonna do, we can't do Gecko Go anymore, but we've got this incredible user base, super uh, passionate play, uh, users. Uh, uh, we were actually able to find a partner in the space who we'd known for a while who was able to end up acquiring us. So we were fortunate with that. But yeah, I mean, that was real rock bottom is not only did I lose my co-founder, that's when I also, my my marriage broke down and uh, I ended up living in the tenderloin because I was suddenly homeless. Um, so the real turnaround there happened when it's like, okay, well, this is the real reset. 
what do you want to do? And um, I'm fortunate that at that time, like there were some relationships that I kept in touch with. And one of my advisors for, for Gecko Go put me in touch with a company that was running an incubator. And so I joined on as an in-house uh, advisor. And through that was where I met my co-founder. Um, when we met, we hadn't intended to do anything together. Like I remember his first words were like, I don't go into business with family or friends, but we were both really interested in like just playing around with ideas. And this was when mobile apps were starting out. So we just started to tinker and decided to build a note training app that would help you sight read. Uh, it was a site, like a music sight reading app. We built it over a few like weekends and just on a whim decided to launch it. And it just so happened that the app got picked up by Amazon as editor's uh, choice of the year for music. And we figured, hey, you know what? There's no harm, like let's give it a go. Can we build something in apps? And so we all left our positions and just started building apps. I actually had never heard that story. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, so how long would I want, what I want people to take away from this is how long between Gecko Go shutting down like ballpark and launching, launching an app? I'd say like six months to a year. And I give that time frame because it was like six months of like winding down Gecko Go, like moving to the tenderloin and all of that stuff. And then it was another six months of like, let's build this music app. Let's do some like exploration without a goal to like, okay, let's, let's start a business. So I, I want to point out a couple of things to anyone listening. Like I love the entrepreneurial journey because it's never up, right? It's up and down and sideways and everywhere in between. Um, and I think that's part of what attracts us to it in some, in some realms, right? Like there's always something new to figure out, but you didn't, what you did not do was whine or complain. I mean, I'm sure you had a day where you maybe weren't the happiest, but you didn't whine or complain. You didn't blame somebody else. And you didn't go work for somebody else. I think, again, 99% would have been like, where can I send my resume? You didn't even mention that. You were just like, I went and found, like through networking, found an incubator. Again, it comes back to networking. Um, I found an incubator and we launched this app and the app started to do well. So what, I, whatever happened to that app, I did not, I didn't know anything about this app. It's still in the stores. Like I have the idea that we want to improve it because it's there. It was like one of the top rated music apps. It's still like used by piano teachers. So we get all these requests and like, oh gosh, I really want to build it. The challenge is it's it, education can be tough to monetize. And like our subsequent apps did so much better that we, we never had the chance, but I really want to fix it. It's, it's called Note Trainer. Do you um, still own it? Yeah, we still do. It's still, it's still around. <laughs> That's really interesting um, because, well, what happened, I, I didn't know we were going to have this discussion at all. Um, okay. So you, we'll come back to no trainer. All right. So you had this, how did you, how did we get to the next app? How did you guys land? I'm going to let you take it from there. Cause I don't want to give away what your next app was. Well, sure. Like, I mean, we, we were still in experimentation mode and that's where I'm saying like, sometimes not having a plan makes more sense because I think about like my early days where I'm like, I want to have a house by this day. I want to have this career by this day. And like, none of that happened. So forget it. <laughs> we just, we just kind of go to hackathons because also I, I really like hackathons and like things like Startup Weekend because they're time constrained events that force you to prioritize. 
Like, what do you really want to accomplish by the end of this period? And so we just started going on, mostly actually the reason why we went to hackathons was we were starting out and I needed test devices and we couldn't afford to buy all the different devices. And these hackathons were usually giving you tablets and phones as prizes. So we're like, let's just go win some tablets. So we just went to hackathons all up and down the, the West Coast and built something for a weekend. And then we'd submit what we like, you know, polish it after that weekend and submit it. So we did like Kino apps, we did like word search, we did like word search in Spanish, we did bingo. And I guess, yeah, out of all the apps that really took off, uh, the one that really took off was bingo. So I just want to like recap how calm and collected you were. You were like, first off, I, Pokin, you didn't have any money at this time. No. Like, I don't believe that you were really homeless, but the tenderloin. I, I mean, I was living in a converted motel. So it was yeah. pretty like. Pretty rough. Paying by the week, you know? Didn't have enough money to go buy a tablet or any of the stuff to do another business. Like anyone listening to this, I want you to get that. Like it, some people I think say, oh, well, they made it as an entrepreneur because they had a credit line or mommy and daddy gave them money. I mean, like I've had the same experience where, you know, there's $50 in the bank and I'm figuring out if I'm going to buy McDonald's or if I'm going to buy ramen. And like McDonald's is the more attractive, like meal, right? Um, you, and instead of going and getting a job, or instead of going and asking somebody to buy it for you, you said, let's go enter a hackathon because we can win. And you get free food for the weekend. And how many did you win? Oh, this okay. is, I love this part of the story. Cause you got like watching think, you and Nick tell this is awesome. I mean, I think we won them all, but I'm trying to think like probably like six or seven before, like it became more of a distraction than so, <laughs> that was helpful. That's the other thing. Like you're both you and Nick are, are excellent driven, like entrepreneurs. There are some that launch it dirty. You are not that kind of person. You definitely want revenue and you want to get to market quickly, but you always made sure that it was better than average. Um, and when you went to a hackathon, you guys always won. Like that's a, that's a really fun outlier. So well, I think what it is, is and this is in hackathons. This is true for business. A lot of people try to do too many things at once and you really can't do really a lot of good things at once. So whenever we did hackathons or when we launched our product, we didn't try to be everything for everyone. Like we picked a couple things and just made sure that whole experience was solid. So like, you know, when we did our bingo game for like the hackathon, it wasn't super feature complete, but let's say like the one room had, you know, audio, it had our own voiceovers, everything looked finished in that one thing. And I think that's that's more important, like create the full experience for one serving one person or for that one use case. Interesting. So you, that's how we landed on bingo. And then you guys started a whole chain of bingo apps. Yeah, like, I mean, we tried a bunch of different apps. Like in that time, we still wanted to do different things because we didn't actually want to do bingo. It just kind of ended up being that bingo wanted us. That's one, yeah. Yeah. So you went on, I want to talk about like, so you ended up getting acquired. Mm -hmm. When you guys got acquired, I mean, you were, I remember talking to you guys maybe six or eight months before then. And you, like, it wasn't even really on your radar. Yeah, it wasn't. Because coming out of Gecko Go, like the thing I really wanted to do was build a sustainable business that was focused on monetization first. The reason why that was important to me was I felt like, 
the truest test of if you're building something people want is you build something they want to pay you for. So it's not so much it's like trying to be greedy. It's more of a barometer of is, if this is a quality product. Well, if it's viable, right? I mean, yeah. the whole reason that you're in business is to make money. And if your business doesn't make money, then you shouldn't have it. But it's it, it always blew my mind. I didn't come from VC or like starting a business in that realm. But it always blew my mind that people would, oh, we don't need to be profitable. We need to be profitable in year eight. We just need to collect users, right? Like, I mean, it works. Obviously, that's what Facebook did. It's it makes sense for some things. Like if you're in a business where the winner dominates, you have to. Like it's a race to get as much market share as possible. Um, but those markets are really hard and it's winner takes all. So your odds of winning in that space is more like winning the lottery. So I didn't want to be in that space anymore. I wanted a business where it was sustainable and I could grow at the pace I was comfortable with where I knew if I brought people on, uh, I, could, I could sustainably keep them. Because I never wanted to go through an experience like I did uh, with GeckoGo where we had to lay people off. So yeah, we were focused on building something that was sustainable and that didn't necessarily include selling. That's awesome. I mean, and you guys also, you took a very interesting view of employees as well because I... I mean, when I met your employees, you guys were focused on making sure, I wouldn't call it like California startup. It wasn't that vibe, but it was, we're going to have a good time. We're going to work really hard. And I mean, you paid, you paid average, maybe slightly above average, but you had really good employees that got stuff done for you. Um, Yeah. Like we believe that if you give your team members the right environment, they'll thrive. Like I think about how many people are disenchanted, but it's because they don't feel like their work has value or meaning or that their contribution is doing anything. And you put the right people, like not, it's not for everyone, but like we hire for people who are self-starters. And so if you do, like, it makes more sense to get out of their way uh, outside of present providing like the, the right resources for them. So um, we really, we, we see our, our team like family. And so like, you know, we tried to create like the right environment. Like it was important, even when we were really tiny to make sure they had healthcare. Uh, we wanted to make sure they didn't have to deal with like little, like we, we did food like the Bay Area, but it was more because we just wanted to make sure they were eating. Cause those guys, sometimes if they're in a project, they're like not eating for hours. They're like, you gotta eat, you gotta drink. So um, we, we prioritized that, but then we let them, you know, push back on things and give us feedback and build the things they're passionate about. Well, that's, that is the key. I mean, I think as entrepreneurs, we think everybody wants money as their main incentive. What people really want is to feel like they matter. They want they want recognition and they want to have a work environment. How many people, I mean, the last girl I dated, she had a nine to five job and she would get up in the morning and cry because she hated going to work so much. Like who wants to live in that? If instead you make it a fun environment where they're going to have a good time, you're going to give them food just so you guys know, like I went to visit their workspace and they had a cooler with 26 different kinds of beverages. That didn't include coffee. That was just the cooler. Like you guys took great care of them, but it, it didn't cost you an arm and a leg. It, it wasn't cheap, but it was, it, and you planned that in from the beginning. I think that's the other key. When you're, when you're running the budget that way and you build it, you know what the cost is and you're okay with it. And it led to you having a better team. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd sooner work with like people that I enjoy hanging around and um, sooner create the environment. Like we definitely made sure like we were never stressed about bringing people on. 
a lean team is going to run more efficiently anyway. So it wasn't a concern of having a penny pinch on snacks. So there, I have a couple different directions that I want to take this. I'm going to go back really quick just to, you're doing these hackathons. Yeah. You know, bingo is starting to take off. When was the moment that you guys were like, okay, we're going in on bingo because I could see you, especially knowing Nick, like Nick likes to try a lot of different things. You like to try different things. You're going to hackathons. You built the bingo game. You're going to another hackathon. You win another tablet. Like, were you starting to see some money come in off the bingo? Were you like, what, what changed and said like, okay, we're not doing hackathons and we're going to focus on bingo. Um, I mean, we never really like super focused on bingo. <laughs> we really tried not to do much with it. But like the one thing that was consistent, no matter what products we were doing is we wanted to really support our players. So in terms of monetization, I mean, as soon as we, we released the product, like we started getting sales. Uh, I mentioned again, like we couldn't compete with the really big guys. So we just focused on a very specific vertical. So the bingo app that we launched was specifically a bingo game that you could play anywhere, anytime. It worked without Wi-Fi. And um, that was a big contrast because other people needed Facebook, needed an active internet to play. So you didn't really have so many choices uh, if you wanted to play offline. We also made it super easy to contact us. So we're one of the first games that put like a customer support panel right inside the game. And Nick and I in the beginning would be uh, personally answering all the messages. So while we were trying really hard to do something else but bingo, like we really made sure that anytime we were interacting with customers and players, uh, when they wrote in that we gave them a thoughtful personal response to show we cared. Like we responded to 100% of reviews. So it was while we were trying to get away from bingo that bingo kept growing. Um, and then there wasn't like a conscious effort to focus on it. Just, you know, every time I looked, it was bigger. And at a certain point we just said, we, we got to focus on this. Right. The, I mean, the customer support, I was there when we, I mean, you and I had several discussions around customer support and how, because you hired somebody to do it and they weren't doing the, they were copy and pasting messages. Yeah. And you're like, no, this is not, I, I love that you are very customer support driven because at the end of the day, if your customers are happy, they're going to be your raving fans that are going to spread your game to other people. They're going to spread your message and they're going to continue buying from you. Absolutely. Um, for sure. Like, I mean, that, that was frustrating for us because we as customers, like if you take the time to write to someone, you want to feel heard. Like I think of how many times you're, you're upset about an experience, you write to a customer service place, you get a canned message that shows they don't care. And what do you do? Like you're so upset, you go tell like 10 other people how upset you are. Whereas like if they had an empathetic response, instead you'd be like, wow, you know, this was, it's so unusual that you're, you're surprised when you tell people. Like I look at our reviews, so many people were like, wow, this is a real person responding. I tell all my friends and family about you. So it's, it was so helpful for us to have that opportunity to be able to respond that we didn't want to lose that uh, when we hired people. So we actually had to rejig our whole hiring process to find the right people after that experience. Yeah. The, so let's walk into your acquired. First off, how did that feel when they, when you first like started thinking about it, you got contacted and how did that feel internally? And like, what were the, can you share anything about it? Cause I, you didn't start your business with the idea of being acquired right. where I think a lot of people are like, my dream is to be acquired. I can't wait till I get, you know, the check for millions of dollars and I can walk away from it. And you guys, I remember like 
at the time, like you were like, I don't know. I think that's the best position to be in. Like for sure, like it's super important to know um, a, a few base things, like, cause you never know if you're gonna get acquired. So I would recommend like making sure you have a few things checked, like what's a contingency plan? Like can the business run without you? Is it profitable? Make sure your books are clean. Cause like that kind of stuff is messy to untangle. Like luckily we just always had clean books. So the whole process is easy. Um, but like for us, yeah, like it wasn't, we didn't seek it. And so when it came up, it, we, it wasn't important. Like it wasn't life or death, the whole process. And I think that helped because it allowed us to be more aggressive in negotiations because we didn't need it. And so it was more like, okay, yeah, we'll entertain this option. Um, here's the minimum we need for it to even be worth talking. And we threw out a number and they were like, yeah, we'll do that. So, you know, that started the, the thinking. And throughout the whole process, like we were on, we kind of waffled a lot about whether we wanted to lose the control of our own business. I think the tipping point was really just, you never know what can happen. We have friends who turned down offers and then the, the environment changed and they couldn't sell anymore. And so we thought bird in hand is a lot better. So it was like that decision that tipped it. But like for me, losing control was difficult so it was a huge priority for us when we we're doing negotiations and going into the company that we negotiated terms that essentially allowed us to operate independently, uh, even during our earnout. Well, that's so you guys stayed with them two years after signing. Mm -hmm. How did the control did I, I remember you talking about like how you were you were trying to retain as much control as possible. And you thought you'd been successful in that. Um, it was really interesting, like the office building that they put you in, you guys ended up taking over. And like, I remember the one time I came and visited you, it was you and your team and like the big empty office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like you never know what happens. Like we went in, we're the little guys. We were five people when we joined in. And by the time we stepped away, we were running the whole division. And we, I think we had 26, 27 people. Um, just a lot of things can happen in the short term. Like the guys who brought us in, like we really like them and respect them because they were like, that was also a motivation. The fact that the people who brought us in originally were founders themselves. So we felt like they appreciated what that meant. Um, but like crazy things happen. Like while we were there, like that turned over a lot of people who were working with us turned over. And so with the priority changes, like it just ended up that, um, we ended up growing a lot more than we would have normally, but that brings a lot of interesting experiences too. And it allowed us to bring on additional specialized resources in art, in um, animations that we, we wouldn't have done on like with a small, like five team of five. If I would like to ask what your, what your favorite growth experience was, maybe not the easiest growth experience in there, just because you wore a couple different hats when you were there. I mean, you came in like, and then you were you were put in the CEO role, and then you were you were like, I remember you were having a conversation with the lady that was in Pennsylvania, like, and have like having to fill that role. Like you you had a lot of different hats going sure. on over the last couple of years. Gosh, uh, what's a favorite? I mean, I, I appreciate a lot of the challenges. I'd say like the most personal growth and wasn't my favorite because it was not fun at all. Was the process actually of integrating the San Francisco um, office because our parent company had acquired a different company. And at one point we were integrating everyone. And like, we felt like it was really important to do that in a, like as human of a way as possible. 
and, uh, and in a sustainable way because we had to end up bringing on a lot of their products as well. So I hope um, uh, that we were able to have those discussions and transition the team, uh, like I said, in a humane way, like it wasn't fun and it wasn't easy, but like that was important to us. Why do you feel like it was the biggest growth? Because you had to deal with people Gosh. because of the strategy? There was so much because all of a sudden, like we ended up inheriting a whole division that was bigger than ours. And then we were running all of it. We had to transition the offices from San Francisco to Las Vegas. We had to move the people who were willing to come and um, let go of the people who weren't. We had to rehire a number of different roles. We had to restructure all of their games to work in our platform so that instead of declining, they could grow again. So there was just a ton of crazy stuff we had to take on. Meanwhile, like making sure we were still delivering our goals for our, our core division and making sure our team members still felt like they were important. That's, I mean, it's amazing to me. And I want to point out that you didn't, nowhere in this conversation did you say like, I thought about quitting. I thought about suing for, you know, breach of contract. Instead, you just figured out how to do it. Like throughout I just want to point out like the the chain of events leading here. Not once did you ever say quit. Not ever once did you blame somebody else. Nowhere in here did you play a victim role. Like you always just said, okay, how do I solve this problem? Sure. And that was a nice thing there is that it was our choice. Like by our contracted terms, they couldn't force us to do it. But we just looked at the the team members. Like we did like some of those mem like team members from the other studio were in our office. And if we didn't take it on, they'd lose their jobs, which meant our friends were going to lose their jobs. So it was important for us personally to orchestrate something that could work. So once we said, this is what we're doing, like just gotta unblock roadblocks. That's, I mean, you found a way. And that's the thing, when you look for a way, when you don't become a victim, when you don't say like, this sucks, I don't wanna do it, blah, blah, blah. Instead you just say, okay, this is what we wanna do. How can we do it? I mean, you figured out how to get tablets by going to hackathons. You figured out how to start a travel company by volunteering at events. Um, your your you journeys. Change. Go ahead. Well, I said, if you change your mindset instead of like, yeah, woe is me, the world sucks. It's more like, this is a growth opportunity. What can I do here? It's, it's almost like, I think about how it's in the downturn that the most successful businesses come up. So if you see this as an awesome opportunity for you to get super creative and come up with something you wouldn't have otherwise, I think your mindset being different makes all the difference. I think that is the best takeaway possible from this entire interview, especially where we are right now. I mean, the end of 2021 coming up, we're going to see some pretty crazy times, I think. Um, to bring it full circle, though, you've you exited your earnout. You guys have successfully had a an awesome exit. What's next? What do you see yourself doing? I mean, I like to do something again. I'm not sure what yet. The one piece of advice I got off from a lot of people is like their instinct is to dive right in and just like do something. And a lot of people said, give yourself the permission and the time to allow or discover what comes. So we didn't really fully embrace that because our idea of allowing our minds to be free was to completely gut a house. So <laughs> I think that's taken up our time. We're pretty exhausted from that. But I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing like, because the most successful outcomes for me were unplanned. So I'm trying to leave that space open to see what comes up. Cool. 
so I want to I want to ask a few tactical pieces. Sure. Um, a lot of people listening to this, you know, they're entrepreneurs. They might be growing their own business. They might be in a service-based business. I want to talk specifically about monetization because I think that 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 was the key difference between your first business and your second was that you focused on we need some money coming in. Mm-hmm. How? I mean, the bingo app made money very quickly, correct? Like within a few days, few weeks. Few days, yeah. So, what would you tell somebody? Actually, we know somebody very well. Um, who is too perfection based, right? Has to be perfect. I have to have it all done. I have to bug hunt all day and get it perfect versus, I mean, honestly, I would call you a perfectionist. You are, you, you have a very high standard. Sure. What would you tell somebody that is like, okay, I left my job six, six months ago. I left my job a year ago. I've been working on this for two years while I still do my day job. When should somebody launch something to make money and what would be a good process to a minimal viable product? I got to flip that around. I'd hope it doesn't take two years for someone to find out if you're building a product they want. Starting from the moment I have a business concept, like you, I'd want to start figuring out like either I'm doing something that's so proven that like if it's, if it's just another product in the market and you're just taking a slight angle, fine you know, build more of it and then launch. But otherwise, like I would go out and the question is going to be how much would you pay for this and get a commitment, either get like ideally get someone to put a down payment down if it's a a bigger product or say like, okay, yeah, I would sign on for this. Um, I'll do a two week trial, but at the end of it, I'd I'd pay. Like the sooner you can get to commitment on something people like, I think the better. And I think you can do it without being fully flushed. Like we, we got our first developer of, of PowerPoint slides. Like we got our first angel from not much more than that. I think they just need to understand where the vision is. You're not making them like pay up front. You're just saying, I would pay for this. So someone starting out, you can be a perfectionist. Just make sure that whatever narrow slice you're choosing, do a great job on that. And it, as soon as possible, pulse check that it is what people, someone wants. Doesn't have to be super broad mass market, but someone has to want it to pay you. How would you do, how would you market that? Like if, let's say that it's, um, I mean, we could take an app, we could take a simple product, like let's take a 500 or $1,000 X, right? I'm working on this. How do I go find people who buy something that's not done? Because that's what I hear. That's what I can hear people yelling like, but it's not done or it's not good enough. Like nobody's going to pay me for it. How do you approach people? Um, we didn't even talk about your time in China, but- that might be that might be part two. But how would you approach people about getting people to pay? Because I feel like that's where people get hung up, right? They're like, but it's not good enough. I wouldn't pay for it. It has to be flushed out enough so they can see where the vision is. Because for sure, like I think about how many people are not able to see a fixer upper house and um, buy it because they're like, oh, this is a disaster. But if you showed a render, people are often able to understand where the vision is. So I would say like, depending on the product, like how close could you proxy it? Like you don't have to build the features for it to give you the experience. There's so many great mock-up tools that can walk you through a flow. If you constrain like an example and demonstrate that, um, you don't even need to code in a lot of examples to walk through what the experience might be like. So whatever minimum you could build through mock-ups, through just, it's really mock-ups that that could explain where you're going. I think a lot of times that's going to be enough 
to to show people. Like I think of the examples where they say, okay, you know, put a landing page on and see how many people sign up. It's that equivalent. I think almost every business, like I heard a podcast about a person who was building a cookie delivery and they just, they didn't even make their own cookies. They bought them from Costco and heated them up and did that. So there's always a way to be creative to proxy uh, enough to see, okay, if this is the rough thing I'm trying to sell, is someone interested? Well, that's to your, the cookie example is great. I mean, if you can sell cookies from like, all you're doing is proving that people will pay you money. And if they'll pay you money for a cookie that came from Costco that you heated up, imagine what's going to happen when you get the best cookies. Mm -hmm. If you can be profitable with a rough draft, you're going to do way better with the finished product. I think it really comes down to just people's internal dialogue and like having, having faith that what they're doing is good. Um, a lot of people, because you have the full view of your product and your weaknesses, so you overestimate how much people would judge you on that. Whereas people are lazy, they're boring, they're just, or not boring, they're bored, they're distracted, they're not, they're not going to nitpick. Like, in the middle of watching some show, something comes by, like, is there enough to pique their interest? Like, that's the bar. Like, it's not like yeah. I'm going to do a full, like, teardown of your cookie. That is 100% correct. Um, I do think it is important that they actually say they will pay for it, though, not just say they have interest, because I've seen too many people be like, oh, yeah, that's a really cool idea. Well, that they could be saying that because you're a friend or because they're just being friendly. They oh. need to actually push a button and say they will give you money or give you money. Yeah, um, the price. Like, it's not like, oh, yeah, I'll pay for that. It's like, my price is $9.99. Would you pay $9.99 or pay me $9.99? Like right. as close as you can get to actually getting the money or getting the commitment, I think is the strongest proof there is interest. Awesome. The other question that I'm going to ask, which I think you are very well suited to answer, a lot of people stress about hiring their first employee. How, because you found your founder, then found another founder through networking. Mm -hmm. And then when you guys hired for, we went through how you guys hire and like what you guys look for. Cause I feel like there's, there's the two ends of the spectrum, right? There's the person who says, I only want a unicorn. They have to have this standard and this standard and this standard. And oh, by the way, I'm going to pay 20% less than market for that. Or there's the person who says, I just need somebody to do this. You look good. Here's, here's some money, fix it. How do you, how do you blend that? How did you find the right people if you were telling somebody how to hire what would be a framework that you would give them to do that sure for us like the mindset and the app personality is way more important because i think that you can't train personality uh whereas like you could train skills so i mean i think you know the story of how we hired our first team member like because we value like just self-starting and um actually outputting versus training. Like we, we took our first interview candidates with us to a startup weekend and saw what they were like under pressure. Could they set their own priorities and, and deadlines? And the two people we brought with us for the, the hackathon we ended up hiring as our first two employees. So um, since then, we've tried to figure out questions and in interviews that could proxy personality. So for customer service, like you know, we gave them actual questions and saw how they would answer them. Like, were they taking the initiative to research our site to understand that? Were they giving like cookie cutter kind of answers or were they taking the time to be empathetic? And I think like hiring for personality ended up being more important for us. And we tried to, I don't think we were ever uh, undercutting everyone. Like we'd rather you be comfortable. You're not worried about like, are you making enough for your next job? Like we didn't want any of that to be factoring in on your day-to-day -day ability to 
be present while you're working. I mean, that's, you paid your people well, you just didn't, you didn't pay them like you weren't at the top, you were nowhere near the bottom, you were at average. And I think if you interviewed people, they would all say, well, I want more money. But if you said, would you rather have more money and have a stressful work environment or have an average income and love going to work? At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, people will always take average income with less pay. Like some of our team members took pay cuts to join us because we just, it's not that we didn't want to pay them. We just didn't have the ability to pay the price range they wanted uh, when we were starting out. And they just said like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm more interested in working with you guys for, for this price than where I was because I, it was frustrating uh, to no end <laughs> and the other potential options. Awesome. Well, Hogan, this has been an amazing journey. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of this with us. If people want to find you, reach out to you, where would where would you have them go? Would you have them go to LinkedIn? Would you have them go to Instagram? Uh, yeah, they can go on LinkedIn. They can find me there. I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm, my website's super out of date, but um, hopefully this is the motivation to go update it so you can find my contact information on there as well. So tell us the last piece that I want to end with. Tell us about Sumi. Well, Sumi is our little business mascot. And, and the joke is that um, our mascot funded our business because like this little mascot had a little bin and every time we had spare coins or any anything, like we throw it in this bin. And when we started our company, like we took the money from there and and uh, put into business. So we started Absolute Games with 500 bucks. And so Sumi was our first investor. So Sumi is, do you have Sumi around you? Is Sumi there? He's like, it's in construction zone right now. So he's like, <laughs> so Sumi's, they have, they have a little plush doll named Sumi that was, he was the mascot for like the 2012 Olympics, maybe 10 winter Olympics in Vancouver. There you go. And so they have Sumi. Sumi has a blog. Sumi has an Instagram. Yeah. Sumi has a website. <laughs> like if you want to talk to Pogan, you should go find Sumi's website and make <laughs> some comments because that's how you will get the best reaction. Hogan, <laughs> thank you so much for being an amazing guest. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. My pleasure. To everybody else, until next time, take action, change lives, and make money. We'll see you soon. Thanks for checking out today's show. Do you want the fast and easy Cliff Notes version of the actionable steps from today's episode? If so, go to actionbullets.com and download yours today. Also, if you're looking to start using story selling in your business and have stories do 90% of the hard work for you, grab my free course at storyselling.how today. Till next time, take action, change lives, and make money. We'll see you soon.